Danielle St. Louis. Uh, Danielle is a co-founder and facilitator of the Love Circle Sangha and the executive director of the Brooklyn Zen Center. <coughs> Having first taken root in the Tep Hai Vietnamese Zen tradition of Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh, Danielle has sat over 80 days on retreat at Blue Cliff Monastery, the Insight Meditation Society, and Spirit Rock, the Vipassana meditation uh, as taught by uh, Goenka in the tradition of Sagya Upai Khan and at the Brooklyn Zen Center. Danielle aspires to support liberation and dignity through mindfulness and meditation and increase access to these practices in POC, LGBTQI, and marginalized communities. She created the Insight Timer People of Color online group to connect POC meditators worldwide and supported multiple inward bound um, mindfulness education teen retreats and completed the Interdependence Project's year-long meditation teacher training in December of 2015. Welcome, Danielle. <coughs> Juan Sosa uh, is a Puerto Rican bilingual bicultural social worker who has been practicing Vipassana meditation for the last 25 years, most of them at CIMC. Narayan Liebenson has been his teacher for most of his 25 years while he's been there. And in the last five years, he's been involved in the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center and an active member of the People of Color uh, Sitting Group, where he serves as a practice leader that helps to offer sittings exclusively for people of color. He also participates in the People of Color Committee with the or within the organization that is developing policies to promote diversity and, inclus and inclusivity at CIMC. Like, what issues should we be aware of and knowledgeable about? but like not ask, actually asking the people of color in your community, what is it like mm -hmm. to be you here? Mm -hmm. And what is it like to do diversity work in the community? Um, and there's, there's nuances to that. I mean, maybe I was asked and maybe I, I, I didn't fully hear the question and mm -hmm. I, I didn't feel ready to respond or mm -hmm. maybe it wasn't like the right person asking it. Um, maybe I would have responded differently if it was a person of color asking me <coughs> how I was doing. So the, those are the things that, that came up for me. And then the other thing I would say quickly is just that being a person of color in a predominantly white sangha means that I'm typically sort of holding part of myself sort of back or at least in the periphery in my typical interactions with my community um, with some just some kind of recognition that it would be different if we all just came together and sat and then left, and that would feel fine. I wouldn't feel particularly um, sensitive about race, but that isn't what we do, and that's not Sangha. Um, part of Sangha is that some of us sit and listen, and one person gets up and speaks, and that predominantly is a white person, and that is a position of power, it's a position of influence, it's a position of representing uh, the Dharma and the Sangha. Um, so there's a place where I'm listening from as a person of color um, with a piece of myself holding back, waiting to see if this person has a certain kind of awareness of themselves um, and can speak from that place. So when I listen to Lama Rod speak or Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams speak, mm -hmm. it's, it is with a very different sense of hearing and a sense of um, a different sense of a, a, a teacher speaking. So, thank you. Good morning. Can you hear me? No, that one. Hold on. How do you? Maybe. Oh, 
Can you hear me now? Yes. yes. Um, again, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you. Uh, I also want to um, express a little bit of gratitude for Beatrice Anderson, who's not here with us today, but who's very much with me um, in this moment and uh, has been with me for the last two years very strongly um, as we've grown Love Circle Sangha. Um, so I share some of the experiences of um, my practice being tied to uh, my, you know, what I bring as a person of mixed race um, to the experience. Uh, I would say that because of my identity, I've always moved through the world um, leaving a part of myself out of spaces. Uh, so for me, uh, when I found the practice, I, on a whim, decided to go to Blue Cliff and didn't know that it was the beginning of their winter retreat, which is when the monastics really settle in and have lots of ceremony and embark on a three-month period of, of deep practice. So my experience entering into that space was feeling completely welcome, um, which is really interesting because it was a very foreign space to me. Uh, the ceremonies, the folks speaking Vietnamese, um, chanting in Vietnamese, but there was no question that I was welcome. And um, I think that's a part of that tradition and what Thich Nhat Hanh offers, but I think it's also because he's a person of color. <laughs> um, and how we welcome one another into spaces and how we invite each other. Um, we being people who are um, often marginalized in some spaces, when, when the space is created by us, um, it's more about the collective. It's more about um, acknowledging that there might be different people in the room. Um, so that was my initial experience, and I've been really blessed um, since then because I live in New York City, uh, and there are many people of color sanghas there. Mm. So much of my practice has been in um, people of color sanghas. And so I kind of had the reverse experience of realizing when I went to um, sanghas that were not primarily people of color, uh, noticing how uncomfortable I was and noticing how I didn't really, um, I wasn't paying attention to the Dharma because I was distracted by other things. Uh, so, yeah, I would say that my experience in people of color sanghas is just a coming home. Um, and also, for me, uh, a sense of finding community um, where I haven't been able to in any other areas of my life. Um, so, thank you. Hello. <clears throat> Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I'm glad to be here with sharing the panel with uh, some friends and some new friends. Um, I, I prepare uh, an answer to this question, then I left it at home. <laughs> so I'm going to have to um, wing it, which is exactly what I didn't want to do, because that makes me more nervous than I am. Uh, but 
this way, I listen to what other people said and I get inspired by that. Um, so I'd like to start by um, um, expressing gratitude to my benefactors who uh, allowed me to be here today, um, including my teacher, my mother, and other friends who support me on this um, process of um, speaking up. Uh, the experience of being a person of color in a mostly white sangha is not different from being a person of color in a white dominant culture. And um, I have had many experiences in my life as a Puerto Rican uh, social worker where I have been the only person of color in the group. Um, I attended Smith College School of Social Work. I was the only minority person in that class in 1989. So uh, I made jokes about it, um, but that was just my way of surviving. So when at CIMC, which I've been for quite a long time, I mostly experienced that same thing, and I just live with it and sort of, um, what's the word, assimilate comes to mind. The Puerto Ricans, we know how to assimilate pretty good. We have been assimilated by force and other mediums. Um, so I know how to do that pretty good. I could disappeared or minimize my, my presence and um, in very many different ways, quietly, mostly. And it's something um, occurred when my teacher asked me to uh, join, I think that's what happened, that um, my teacher asked me to join the Purple of Color group as I started to form 10 years ago. And I sort of resisted the change, but eventually became interested in seeing, well, what, what would it be if I see with other people of color? So then I went to a all people of color retreat at IMS. And I don't know, my memory is not good, but I think it was 10 years ago, about the same time this whole change in CMC happened. And I see, oh, this is different. I just felt that I could bring more of myself or something in it. And um, I joined the practice leader group right after the retreat and sort of commit myself to the practice and to bring other people of color into the center. And uh, that changed the way I practice at the center in that I, um, I became more outspoken. And it's, um, well, people who see me there know that I usually don't say much. I mean, it's rare for me to be in front. I usually like to see it in the way back there. But that gentleman sitting back there, you know. But I think the experience of being in a people of color group and leading, being, had the option and the opportunity to lead the practice with other people of color had allowed uh, myself to feel more comfortable with that and then speaking and sharing what I've done. So it, uh, I can bring more of myself instead of just some of myself into the practice. So I got uh, more to take and more to give. Um, so that's more or less my experience. Thank you for listening. <clears throat>
Thank you. Good morning. Um, yeah, I looked at the question for a while, and it was hard for me to sort of prepare something to say. Um, it, it felt sort of like what came to mind was how do I separate this from the rest of my experience of being a person of color in white America? Um, and again, I, it was sort of, I think part of drawing a blank was uh, I'm not necessarily explicitly asked that question that often. Um, and it's often uh, a space that I feel awkward inhabiting unless I'm around people with, who usually look like me or share like similar bodies of experience. Um, so thinking in that way, um, I think my experience of being a person of color in predominantly white sanghas has been like all my other experiences growing up in like predominantly white neighborhoods or going to predominantly white college. Um, and there's a, a certain aspect, like when I come to the Dharma, it's always been about like healing and a very personal reason. Um, so the Dharma has never sort of been like separate from that, you know, who I am. I am a black man in America. When I sit on the cushion, the thoughts that come to my mind or the memories and things like that are always going to be wrapped up in my identity. Um, so it, it feels like something that's always been there um, and is a big part of my practice. Um, uh, compassion, bodhicitta is very much for me motivated by racial healing, anti-oppression work, things like that. Um, engaging more so recently with other people of color and sangha has been amazing um, and has kind of highlighted this part. Well, I haven't really thought of this and I haven't really asked myself that question, but I feel more comfortable bringing my full self to this experience, you know? Um, so I resonate with this feeling of like there's something being held back. Um, and that is powerful and now I can see it more in my relationships with some of my teachers, um, you know, what I talk about um, and how I am experiencing what they're saying. Um, Maybe oh, they don't really understand me, or they don't get what I'm trying to say, or am I not speaking the right way, or you know, using the right vernacular or something. Um, my experience has been a, a good one um, in some ways, and in other ways, there's times where I felt like I wasn't really um, able to bring my full self or um, be heard. Um, yeah, I don't have much else to say besides <laughs> that I'm happy to be part of the conversation, happy to be here. Um, I feel somewhat young um, and, and new to this whole thing compared to everybody else, but I'm happy to be in dialogue and glad that this is happening. This is the second Race in Buddhism conference. Um, you know, there's times where I felt awkward talking about race and social things in a Dharma context. Am I too angry or too passionate or is this too mundane? Um, and I've actually had debates with Buddhist friends um, about there's one specific debate was a gender issue, um, but race and gender, and you know some of the spiritual bypassing I think was happening in the conversation. Um, you know, this is like world transcending and like emptiness and like, well, <laughs> these things are also like happening. Um, um, yeah, so it feels good to be here.
so nice to be in community with all of you. Um, I'd like to also express gratitude, um, especially for my dear spiritual friend, Darla. Um, I wouldn't be here sitting in front of all of you had she not, for whatever reason, decided to pull me in to become a practice leader at CIMC for the people of color Sangha. Um, total serendipity, I think. I was not qualified at the time enough to be a practice leader. I'm so grateful. It's really blown up my practice in so many ways I can't even articulate. Um, so gratitude to her, gratitude to my fellow practice leaders and my Sangha members and to all of you for being here. Um, so I don't know if I can actually speak to what it means to be a person of color in a, in a predominantly white community. I can, I can speak to what it means to be an Asian American um, because I recognize increasingly as a practice leader in a POC space that really um, POC encompasses so much. Um, and we all embody very different experiences. And it's just the fact that white supremacy, oppression exists, that we've been brought together in a certain kind of way. Um, so, and also, I, I grew up... Um, I've never ever thought of myself other than Buddhist. I grew up in a Buddhist family. Um, and I spent part of my childhood, uh, I spent four years during my high school years in Taiwan. So my relationship with the Dharma um, is very specific. Um, so when I, walk in, uh, when I came back to the US for college, I was really looking for a spiritual home, and it was very challenging for me to find one. Um, especially in college, there were um, Buddhist communities, mostly Western and white, and I just didn't see the reflection of myself in those communities, um, particularly coming from um, a Buddhist family that's really like tradition and ritual and um, which can also be problematic but like there's something very personal about that and I um, I didn't see that in the more secular form of Buddhism and also there was sort of some hippie culture mixed into it and, <laughs> and people were talking about like being able to drink mindfully and smoke weed mindfully and <laughs> I was struggling with that. <laughs> so I, I had a hard time connecting spiritually with that. And then, um, and then I also really struggled with sort of returning to sort of the Buddhist temples that I grew up with. You know, in both those communities, I had the experience of being both seen and unseen. Seen in ways that I didn't identify with, that felt like projections, like other people were seeing me, but just but not really seeing who I really felt I embodied. 
and then those parts of myself um, I didn't feel like were seen at all. Um, so being a part of the PSC community at CMC has really felt like returning home, you know? Um, I think the breaking of, sorry, um, moving away from the very traditional sort of Buddhist community I was part of, and then also there's just something about how challenging even for a POC community it is to come together, and yet we do, and there is just some kind of love that sort of is born out of that, um, and tenderness, um, and care. Um, yeah. So I want to pick up kind of where uh, Melanie talked about this idea of being seen and unseen, and, and the different challenges of what it means to be a POC in a, um, in a predominantly white sangha. And so I'm wondering if, um, if uh, some of the panelists would comment about, you know, what are those challenges that you alluded to some of them, but what, is it, what does it feel like? What does it look like as a person of color in a predominantly white sangha? This challenge of being seen and unseen, the, uh, the, 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 the challenge of being a person of color in general in predominantly white America. Um, of bringing to the cushion racism and and different forms of oppression, and so I would love for for you all to to talk about what do they look like those challenges for you. I tend not to think of my race until someone else brings it up. Um, I'm more acutely sensitive to my gender because I feel more vulnerable as a woman. Uh, be honest about that. But in terms of my race, um, I come from a very diverse family. So I have many shades. We are of different ethnic groups in terms of within my, my immediate family. If you were to see us, you wouldn't think that we were all sharing the same DNA. But in the United States, and also within my family, I learned about race, you know, what it means. <laughs> Um, by virtue of the complexion of my skin, I have certain privileges that some of my family members wouldn't have, and I acknowledge that. But what is it, I mean, and I, when I said earlier, I bring my relative self into my practice, so I bring that to my practice, that experience. So the challenges sometimes that I feel in community, in the larger community, is that it's misunderstood why there is even a POC Sangha um, in the sense, you know, why do you need this separate affinity group over here? Um, and that in itself almost feels um, collapsed for me. It's not broad enough because if we're able to welcome all, regardless of the shade of their skin, their gender, their however they self-identify, we have a richer environment overall. So that's one of the main challenges. Um, the other challenge I find is because of the cultural differences, when I say something, is it understood? 
and um, language, I get tripped up in it often because I feel like I have to restate my point several times before I'm understood. And that's one of the legacies that, you know, when you're not of this culture primarily, even though I've assimilated as one is stated to the point where a lot of my cultures dropped. For Part of it is safety and part of it is acceptance. Um, and as my old, my family ages, I, I have this uh, great affinity for the blessings that they have afforded me for making the trip to this country and the sacrifices because for them, coming to the U.S. meant their kids were going to get an education, um, which meant we would have a better livelihood and a better existence. But with that came all the other challenges of assimilating and being part of that. So, you know, we bear the legacy of what privileges for those people. When I say we bear the legacy, you know, we are the recipient of what that means to us if we're not part of the dominant group. And not to say that those individuals who are part of the dominant group all have access or privilege. I'm not saying that, but it's a little bit more challenging to weave through a culture that already has the normatives of what it should be look like. So that's where I feel is challenging at time, and I've totally digressed from <laughs> what I wrote, but I just wanted to share that. <laughs> What I connected to with this question was, for me, the real challenge of uh, what it means to trust in a community. Mm -hmm. um, I think if you're going to do this kind of work, um, this might, my judgmental side might come out a little bit, but um, I, I just have a deep, I have a belief that it's it's a deep it's deeply relational work. Mm -hmm. Um, that it's deeply personal work, that if you're not making it about yourself um, and your, your direct relationships to people, um, you're missing a huge piece um, of um, the awareness, that the sitting and the uh, practice is such a huge piece. Mm -hmm. Being knowledgeable about the current issues and systemic injustices in the world is a big piece, and then doing relational work. Um, having some kind of group process. Um, essentially, I mean, it's the therapist to me that it looks like group therapy, honestly, <laughs> where you're in the mix with people and having honest dialogue about your personal experience, whatever it might be, um, around identity and culture. That's, that's my bias. And that's, I think, um, what it means to be in Sangha. I think it's a culture of being authentic with one another, and that's what we're holding each other to. Um, and that's why I liken it, um, my affinity to, uh, to hip hop, actually. Mm -hmm. That this is a, it's a culture where you're constantly trying to sort of, um, out of sheer respect for one another, trying to sort of also one-up each other in terms of how real can you be? Um, <laughs> how much can you show up and be who you really are and say how you really feel and say how you really think? And that is... Uh, unbearably messy. Chögyam Trungpa Rinpoche said once, the whole point of any relationship is to share some degree of honesty mm -hmm. and to explore how far that can go. 
And in that way, relationships can become extremely powerful and intense and beautiful. Um, I had this experience uh, last weekend training with some sort of up and coming teachers in Shambhala and a lot was coming up for myself around culture as well as my good friend of color in the audience. Um, and we, we, we dialogued about that and we, um, we were brainstorming about how, how can we make this work. People of color sangha, yes. Uh, white sangha, yes. We need those. Um, having those to integrate and have dialogue, yes. And we're like, yeah, and then these ideas of like, we should do this fishbowl where folks of color are in the middle and talking about race and white folks are listening and then we switch it and white folks are in the middle talking about race and folks of color are, are listening on the outside and then we all kind of, you know, digest that and process that. And then we talk to our teacher who's leading that training and he's like, yeah, let's do that, like now. <laughs> um, and so we did. Um, and there were only two of us of color um, in a group of maybe 30. Um, and I feel like we were as honest as we could be in that moment. And uh, what I want to say about that too, though, is that it was one of the most intensely emotional things I've ever had. It was one of the, it, it's one of the times where I've, probably one of the only times that I've been able to walk from an intensely emotional conversation about race and feel like relief. Um, um, because I saw white Sangha members of mine, people I love and care about, get intensely emotional in a way I've never seen. And I could see them carrying it in a way that they hadn't been for me, for us, um, for people. And that was like, wow, th they're willing to do that. And I'm like, 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 you know, I'm like, I'm all in then, you know, like, you know, we're family, like we are gonna work, we're gonna, we're, this is gonna work. And not only that, I recognized in myself, sorry, this has become long-winded. I recognized in myself that, wow, I also have this room to grow in terms of how much to trust these folks I'm with and love uh, with who I am. And, and they can hold that and they can get intensely emotional and guilty and all kinds of feelings. And I can let them have that and I can also trust myself to know how to care for them in that moment. And they can learn to trust me to, to say what I need and all that good relational work that needs to happen. So, thank you. Um, so, I'm sitting here really feeling the energy of the folks around me, um, the folks sharing right now, and I'm just humbled, and I want to say thank you for your courage. Um, I also, if I'm fully taking risk and being honest, I'm also really angry. <laughs> um, a piece of that is that I think what's most challenging for me in Sangha is that you know, the point that Juan brought, brought up, which is our sanghas are a reflection of this dominant, you know, culture that we live in. And it's very frustrating 
to confront our blind spots. Um, it's frustrating in my daily life, but it's also frustrating in my spiritual life. Uh, and one specific example of that is um, at Brooklyn Zen Center, before I was part, let's say, of Brooklyn Zen Center, I was asked to participate in an undoing whiteness, or no, undoing racism workshop offered by the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond. They're exceptional um, in offering a training around what, ra like, what racism has been in terms of historically, how it's, um, you know, a systemic problem, uh, and <laughs> I sat next to a friend of mine at this training, and I remember her just touching my arm in moments, you know, and, and I was not, I did not, I barely spoke the whole weekend. Um, and when I walked out of it, I, I acknowledged that it was the first time that I really felt like I just offered myself um, to others in a way that I didn't want to. Um, and I, I just sat there and listened to people processing, people being at the beginning of seeing these things. And uh, it's really painful. Um, it's really painful to be reminded that we have these blind spots and that it affects me in every single moment of every single second of my life. And that some people, even myself, you know, the privileges that I hold, when I move through spaces and I'm not aware, um, I'm causing harm. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that's the challenge. The challenge is that it's, it's not any different than uh, how I'm moving through every day of my life. And then it's even more painful because it's the space that I cherish and this dharma that I feel is pretty clear <laughs> um, that it is racial, relational and it is about that we are very connected to one another. And so when the lack of understanding arises, it's really uh, painful. Thank you. Um, sure. <clears throat> uh, yeah, a couple of things on my mind. Um, I think one like seems like a basic challenge, but it just you know I feel like there's a challenge of having to um, move between like multiple different worlds, you know, so I wasn't raised Buddhist, um, so I had to adopt Buddhism, right? you know, I practiced Tibetan Buddhism, which is like totally far removed from anything relevant in my life and anything like my family, like my community of color, like my people, my, you know, my family specifically. So there's a challenge of having to like leave like a comfortable kind of zone. You know, most black folks that I don't know are, are doing, are, most black folks that I know aren't doing like Tibetan Buddhism. And um, so that's sort of like a challenge, um, you know, feeling a little awkward in a new space and always sort of feeling like, um, you know, I gotta have my, like in America, you know, sort of where do I belong? How am I carrying myself? How am I being perceived? Um, so that's just like a subtle challenge, I think, that sort of just came to mind. Um, and then interacting with the tradition and it's speaking to me. Um, and lately that speaking has sort of been pointing me back to like where I came from. Um, 
which doesn't necessarily always feel like a challenge, but just moving between those different worlds is challenging sometimes um, when, you ha when you are a marginalized identity. Um, there's sort of a, an emotional labor um, and management that one, I think, has to do all the time. You don't have that pure subjectivity. Um, and um, something else that's challenging, I think, you know, to take a risk. Um, I don't know if it's like anger. I think, think there's some anger. I personally like. Um, it's sort of challenging that certain things I feel like need to be specifically addressed. Uh, and I mean, obviously, those are good things. Conversations are good to have and things like that. But I think um, when I think of like dharma and practice, is like a radical self-honesty. And uh, so these issues that we're talking about, race, um, you know, throw in like class and gender and things like that, I don't, personally, I don't see how those can be outside of our circle of practice. Um, you know, the Dharma, you know, you're practicing, there's an awareness, a sensitivity, things like that, and we move into the world and, you know, the world is structured in a way, these things are happening all the time. So it's a little challenging for me, and maybe this is just me, my bias or arrogance, whatever, but, um, having to specifically address something that's always like so real to my experience. Um, you know, and then I've been reading slowly uh, Between the World and Me, mm -hmm. and he, he ta Coates talks about, uh, you know, these sort of, uh, he talks about like the dream, right? The dream of whiteness and race and things and how these always have an effect on the body. You know, it's very real. Um, so it's sort of a challenge for me sometimes lately. Um, you know, where I prefer to be sometimes talking about these things with other people of color um, because it's challenging to feel like I have to be teaching or sharing or talking about something that's like always been so obvious to me or like I heard about ever since like, you know, my mother was talking about these things, my uncle, mm -hmm. things like that. I wasn't Buddhist and I wasn't in a Buddhist circle. It was in a Jehovah's Witness circle. You know, what is it like being a black person in like a predominantly white congregation? Um, so that's sort of a challenge. It's it's a beautiful challenge in a way, um, but again, it feels sort of uh, like work <laughs> a little bit sometimes. Um, yeah. um, um, so, I guess two things. One of um, just the challenges of being me um, as a person of color in a com uh, predominantly white community, um, or maybe first to say that it's a, for me, I acknowledge it's a real privilege that I grew up in a Buddhist family in certain ways because I never question whether I belong in a Buddhist community or I never question whether or not the Dharma is for me because, you know, that has been the privileged environment I was raised in. Um, and as a practice leader, it's something I think a lot about is, you know, when people come to the people of color set, part of it is entering a space where they feel like, oh, this is a space I could even just visit, you know, and, um, and it's like maybe like a first connection of like, Will they come and stay and engage with the Dharma, or will they leave? You know, and that's for me. That's never been an issue because 
of the nature of the circumstance of, of how I was raised, you know, so but, um, so when I'm a person of color in a predominantly white community, um, I'm dealing with a lot of like spiritual exoticism. Um, and it's like, this is just normal me, right? <laughs> like I'm just being me, engaging with my dharma and my spirituality, and yet like all this stuff is coming at me, you know, and how can I have the capacity to continue to engage and practice while also like, I wouldn't use the word of holding space for that, but like just being in that presence too, you know? And then I think the other challenge, just sort of a, as a broader thing, is um, dealing with the idea that a refuge for all, I think oftentimes it's thought of as inclusion, um, diversity, um, um, there's another word. And I want to challenge that. Like, does a refuge for all necessarily mean integration? That's the word. Um, you know, like, I've th been thinking a lot about that and um, sort of thinking about communities more like ecosystems, um, where there's like treetops and like floor dwellers and everyone in between and the people up top, uh, not to stratify things, but like, we, we all like, have different needs and different, um, in order to engage with the Dharma fully, right? And so, what does integration mean? You know, can people, can like birds, like the way they need to live and be fully themselves are, is different from like animals that are moving on the floor and yet, and they may never interact and yet they're deeply, deeply connected to each other. That like biodiversity is like interconnected. So I've been thinking a lot about like, because the challenge is being a part of a POC community within a larger white space is there's always a question like Navalette said, um, why, why separate, you know? And um, how can we think about when we're nourishing other like communities within our community? It's nourishing ourselves, even if they choose to engage with the Dharma in a separate kind of way. Like, and how how are they still a part of my community, even if if I never if our paths don't cross that often, you know? And how is that nourishing of a community, right? So, decolonization, not integration. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so when I think about the challenges in front of me or inside of me, I'm talking about racism. Um, I'm mostly informed by uh, what I learned in social work school about racism and the dynamics between the oppressor and the person oppressed, which usually that the person oppressed as uh, assimilate or accommodate is the right word to the person who's oppressed. So the challenge for me is that I am so used to accommodate to others. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's hard 
to break that pattern inside of me because it's like a, it's like a little slave inside of me, if I could call that, that I want to be free to speak up and do as I please, but it has, you know, a parameter that's around them that um, sometimes limits it. So one of the challenges personally is speaking up, because I don't really like to speak up. Um, that's why I'm grateful I was invited to speak up, because otherwise I would be sitting in the back of the room. <laughs> um, and the other challenge is, you know, how, how do you talk about that power differential with other people? where they don't know they have the power, or they're not aware of the power. That's hard to do. Um, uh, um, because I don't feel that comfortable myself uh, bringing it up or saying something about it. Uh, and when people want to talk to me about it, I've, I try to listen and say, yeah, that's, that must be difficult to have all that power. Um, um, and have all the benefits. But I, I can relate to that. I'm going to tell you how I can relate to that because being a male in a Latino culture, you, you got a lot of power. Mm -hmm. And I have to admit it, I do. But only, only when I go to Puerto Rico and, um, and um, people, um, you know, you have a dinner, you know, people try to serve you and you know, things like that. And I saw myself. Uh, so, uh, so I, I can relate to that, and that's how I worked um, understanding the dynamic of the power, uh, speaking up, and um, and sharing the experience like I'm doing now of what is to be um, under position of not having that much privilege here, where you have been in places where you have the privilege and the power, and now you don't. And that's, okay, well, gotta work with that. That's my challenge every day, to know that part of me. And, um, um, and I think that being in a people of color group sitting in CMC have offered me that opportunity to feel comfortable and, and to be um, sort of a leader where I could speak up and also listen. Because that one thing about um, Buddhism is very, uh, and in general, I see it a very democratic and equalitarian, at least our sitting, we try to create it that way. And uh, that's something that has made me feel safe. Because that the challenge of finding safety, even though you might be the only person of color, is, is a challenge. but Usually, we have a good teacher and a good leader that you'll be able to find that, and that's really, really important in this, um, with this work. So, thank you. So, I want to um, kind of pick up where um, Melanie talked about, you know, is integration the goal? And I think that's a powerful and provocative question. And as you were asking it, I was thinking about you know, the whole, when people say, well, why black lives matter? Why not say all lives matter? And thinking about how that there is a real corollary there around, by saying black lives matter, that is asserting something 
that doesn't discount the value of being together, but is asserting a certain identity that, that is relevant and matters. And so I would love if, 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 if any of the panelists would take up this question of, you know, is integration, you know, the goal or is it more towards this ecosystem? I'd love to speak to that. Hello? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I've also spent time in sanghas that are POC and ally sanghas. Um, Love Circle Sangha is one of them. And uh, I would say that, um, similar to Black Lives Matter, when we can center the experience of people who are um, traditionally marginalized or uh, dehumanized, um, when we can do that in collective together, uh, it's really rich. Um, it's rich, rich ground for learning. Um, what, I, what we found at Love Circle Sangha is that some people who, um, you know, we don't, we're exploring with the word ally this year, um, but people who are, do not identify as people of color, um, when they come to our space, they have mixed experiences. You know, some people have done a lot of work of educating themselves. We have a lot of activists and social workers and um, people doing work in their own lives, and so they come with a sense of, uh, they're, they're already doing this work. Um, and so they find, like anybody, I guess, like many POC folk who come, they find home. Uh, because they too are having the conversations where they feel that they have to explain to people why this is important and why um, this is relevant. And so to come into a space, it's, it's a refuge. Um, we also have people who come in and feel like they're um, the fishbowl. You know, like, I don't want to be here because I don't want to feel like I'm just observing. Um, and, you know... Over time, they've come and gone and come and gone, and, and with time, they've become more comfortable with the fact that it's not about that experience. Um, it's about a space where they can um, maybe be experiencing less privilege and, and feel what that's like and feel outside of their comfort zone and practice with that. Um, as, as Juan was just speaking about, we all, it's all relative um, for our own experiences. So I think... Um, I think it's really valuable to have sangha that centers a non-dominant space, um, be that based on race, be that based on gender, be that based on class. Um, and so I think it's less about how many bodies are in the room, or it is about how many bodies are in the room, but um, it's less about are we together in this space, as in integration, but how are we holding the space um, and can we center something that is not traditionally dominant? Thank you. I just want to add something. I, I find language, as I said earlier, tricky and because we have to use language um, to communicate the evolution of what we're creating and we are co-creating it. So when we think about integration, biosphere, or ecosystem, as it relates to the practice in our own personal lives, I, 
I almost feel, I'm not saying that one word is better than the other, but I, I think what manifests out of what we're doing is important. The intentionality behind it and deliberative dialogue that we have about what we're co-creating. Mm -hmm. And when I was preparing um, for this, you know, because part of it is, um, I find that I'm private, yet I'm not. And the first question lent to my historical perspective of my relative self and how that manifests in the other places. And I went back to Bikyu Bodu's um, Four Noble Truths, um, the book, and basically what it said here, the beginning and culmination of the way to the end of suffering is really around right view. You know, we acquire the right view that accords with the truth that requires a clear understanding of their meanings and the significance in our lives. So as a culture, when we think of ourselves as a cultural being, what is our, our view when we want to lessen our suffering as it relates to our neighbors? You know, how do we want to, one, embody as one of our guidelines how we treat ourselves first so that we're capable to treat others in a very humane way. You know, we can't distinguish that one life is more valuable than the other. Um, you know, we are in this together, you know, this ecosystem, our planet, how we treat this planet is also how we're gonna survive as a, a human race. So to answer that question, I think it's tricky to have a definitive word that would define the next evolution of this process. I think it's a deliberative dialogue that we co-create and then redefine what it looks like. Um, and it's really our responsibility to do that. And as Melanie said, you know, it is very exhausting work. It you know, really is. But yet you get a glimpse of possibility of what could be, and that creates the space to continue with it. Um, so it's an honor to be part of a conversation. So I just wanted to add that. Thank you. Um, and uh, it is, it, it's such an honor to have this kind of conversation. It just feels really, really rich and honest um, and complicated and uh, nuanced in different ways. And what I wanted to respond to in, in terms of this, this kind of conversation is that um, what speaks to me, what, what's alive for me now in my life is a, a sense of that we aren't, we are not one. Um, mm. That really resonates for me right now. Um, and um, that's not the end all be all, of course. Like, I think that's a helpful attitude to have sometimes, and maybe that's the ground of your practice, but I wouldn't start a conversation with me with that attitude. Mm -hmm. you know, like, that, that, that doesn't feel quite right um, to me. Um, and I, I loved how one teacher put it. I was listening to a talk by a Shambhala teacher, uh, Clark Warren. He was talking about emptiness, and um, he said that this, this pervasive attitude of we are one um, creates the sense of flattening mm -hmm. everything that mm -hmm. suffocates people. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's the same for colorblindness. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think you could say the same for colorblindness. Mm -hmm. um, it really um, eliminates a rich part of the experience um, and eliminates a real 
um, silenced um, voice that a lot of us have. Um, so I really believe in uh, an array of approaches and paths to the Dharma, to race, that people are uh, where they are with it and approaching it the way that they're able and best feel is alive and personal to them. Um, and I just value that. I really value the opportunity to be in practice with persons of only persons of color uh, in a workshop, in a retreat, in a group, um, and to have a different kind of experience. Um, and I also hold just as valuable that enlightened society is not separate. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it just can't be. Um, and so um, I wrestle with those two sides of things. Um, so I think that's all I have to say about that. But thank you. I, I like Navalette, what you're saying about right view. <clears throat> and I was thinking, you know, as Buddhists, we're supposed to always look at the root causes of things, right? And so we're talking about integration and I guess non-integration. And so the question that comes to my mind is like, why do we even have to have this conversation? Um, you know, and, uh, uh, um, you know, like looking at the causes and conditions that are creating the thing that we're talking about. Um, and I tend to sort of agree with uh, your ecosystem model, I really like that, um, for the reason of empowerment. Um, and I think that to take a broad stroke and uh, integrate, um, and this is different than I guess like school integration or something, but there's, a, there's something empowering when um, certain people come together and are able to share their experiences when maybe most of their day they don't feel that comfortability. Um, there's like a real sense of relief and no matter what you look like or how people read your race or whatever, there's some aspect of your identity that when you're with other people that have that, you instantly feel way more comfortable and um, seen. And, uh, and that's very empowering. So I, th I, th I wonder if we would miss out on opportunities for empowerment if we, um, if we are sort of colorblind in our sense of emptiness um, or our approaches to integration. and. Uh, Something I also think about is that um, you know the world is varied and infinite, right? Like phenomena are go on and on and on, and, but at the same time they're empty. So we don't want to like miss the peculiarities and particularities of each person's experience. Um, and there's always like a richness that can be there. Um, so I don't know. I think it's hard to say. Like you're saying, novelette integration or whatever. But I think there's many good opportunities for empowerment when people of like experience and like feeling come together and it makes the whole more rich. Um. So I'm wondering if we can uh, dive a little bit deeper into, you know, what are the benefits? Like you, we talked about that there's this feeling of safeness. I've, I have felt a feeling of ease. Like, oh, okay, like just literal exhale that I can be in this space and with others who understand the complexity of my identity and I don't have to check certain parts of me at the door or I could use a different vernacular and people won't think 
you know, question my intelligence. Mm -hmm. Even when Lama Rod was like, my homegirl, I'm like, yes, that's my boo. Like, <laughs> to be able to bring my full self and not have others question who I am or am I of a certain par or whatever it might be. So if we can talk about what are the benefits of having uh, these spaces within Sangha? I think, you know, we're part of the American Buddhism here and its growth and development. And so I think one of the benefits is, um, you know, the Dharma is always trans taken on a different sort of flavor in each country it's gone to. And we are part of that formation. Um, so I think one of the benefits of having safe spaces or places of ease or people feeling empowered to speak as they speak is that's authenticity right there, you know. Mm -hmm that you're communicating your experience that's the aliveness of it and um and that's very important i think as we buddhism takes root and grows in america that people are speaking and talking from their experience in the way they in the way that who they are and saying true to that um i see one of the benefits i see many benefits but uh, one of them is uh, the opportunity uh, for someone uh, outside of you to recognize what's happening inside of you as, uh, as you're working with that part of you that doesn't feel comfortable showing up. Because uh, we all see the same way, but we all see the same thing. You know what I mean? There's something inside of you that's different in each person when you sit. and. Sometimes to me, there's a, a, a part that feel oppressed. And when I hear somebody talking about, oh yeah, I know how that feel to sit and being oppressed and trying to, you know, what was Reverend Angel talking about? How loud the people of color Sangha is. I, 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 that's exactly how I feel. I, I want to be loud. But, but you can't be loud, but it's a real story. <laughs> <laughs> so the benefit of being loud and not being shamed, of being loud and recognizing that all the parts are there for a reason, and that you got to love them all. The ones that are oppressed, the ones that are free, the ones that are ambivalent, um, the brown parts and the light parts, all that. So that's, that's the biggest benefit um, for me. For me, um, you know, having been around, you know, I've never considered myself an activist because I never, I, I don't know if I really ever recognized myself um, in, in that community or in that identity, but I'm around a lot of people who do a lot of social justice work and it's just such a, carried pace because there's just so much oppression to work to like you know dismantle and so it's just like people are moving people are really like tired fatigued exhausted feeling trauma you know and so you know for me as a practice leader what i'd like to offer is spaciousness you know i think when you're not a person 
um, when you're part of the dominant culture of a center, when you walk into a sit, this is me imagining since I don't know, but I imagine you actually get an opportunity to rest. Like, oh, I'm just going to rest and engage in my practice. But when a person of color walks into a predominantly white space, they're still doing the work, you know? Like, there's no opportunity for healing or rest, you know? And um, so with people of color, sanghas, it's like, I imagine it's like you're a long time traveler, you've got a hiking backpack, you're on a road, you've been walking for a really long time. And then you pass this like little hut, someone's inside, there's tea going, you know, and you pop your head in, they're like, come on in. And then like, they maybe ask you a question and if you don't really feel like engaging, they leave you alone, but they give you a cup of tea and you just sit there and you can be quiet and if you respond, then they'll engage you in conversation. There's just something like, just like spaciousness of, you get to choose how you want to be in the space. And, and I think like, that's really what I hope that a POC space could offer to a POC member who does a lot of work. You know, like, rest is transformative, is radical, you know, but do we get that space a lot? I don't know, you know. So we're reaching the end of our time together, uh, but I want to offer a deep gratitude to each of you on the panel, not only for what you shared with us today, but you know, Melanie and Juan and Navaleta are practice leaders of the Sangha that I, that I kind of call home. And there's so much work that goes into that, and so much work that goes into creating these spaces, and very rarely, you know, you're not getting paid to do it. And so it's very rarely putting your heart and soul into it and to each of the panelists into creating these spaces and, and bringing their full experiences. You know, they talked about it as work and it is work. And it's about acknowledgement of that. And so thank you to all of you for your, your courage and your willingness to share and to be open. And I hope that this is just the beginning of many conversations throughout today about, about honesty, about what it means, this intersection of race and Buddhism. So thank you. I just wanted to share one thing. Um, and it's a poem that I received recently. And it goes like this. And did you get what you wanted from this life? Even so, I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved, to feel myself beloved on this hurt. So I just wanted to close with that. So um, for us to feel beloved on this planet, within ourselves and with each other. So that's my closing. Thank you. So. I heard from Abu that we have some time for maybe perhaps one question, <laughs> one or two questions. <laughs> okay, one and then two. Oh, oh, for, oh goodness. <laughs> Can we do three? Yes. Okay, if there's, if, we're sticking to time being aware of it. One, two, and then three. Um, so I have a question for Brian. I was uh, so struck in what you were talking about in 
how you're really illustrating sort of the core behind all suffering, my understanding of how the Buddha said behind, you know, craving, aversion, everything, underneath it all is ignorance. And that we are so suffering from a history of ignorance of the <clears throat> horrific, ignorant things that white people did many, many years ago to, to Africans of, um, oh, sorry. It, um, I don't think I can start. Is this being recorded or? Oh, okay. Um, so I guess, so it's like there's two levels of ignorance. There's all of the history that we are inheriting, all of the damage that's been done that all of us carry. Um, and then there's the ignorance of people who are uninformed uh, in the Sangha that don't understand the level of pain and how their own ignorance kind of perpetuates all of that. And I, so I guess that the, um, the crux of this is it seems like you, the, the, um, the Buddha said that there are basically three kinds of psychopathology. There's the belief that you are superior to someone, that you are inferior, or that you're, that you're separate. And I, and I feel like a big part of this is people who've been made to feel inferior and it's 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 psychopathological the idea that you know that or that we're even separate from each other and i guess my question is just um as someone who is in the predominant culture who who suffers so much because of what's been done and who wants the sangha to be a place of healing are there any tips or advice that you could give us and maybe this is too complicated of a question for right now but over the course of like what can we do because all of us are committed to the cessation of suffering, and it feels so hard as a white person to know what to do uh, and to want to be helpful. Thank you for your question. My wife's been My wife's been recently asked quite a bit, apparently, when she's with my son. Mm. Oh, what is he? She, she gets asked, what is he? Would, if that ever happened when I was there, I don't think either of us would ever have it in us to like explain how inappropriate that is. Mm. But um, um, I don't know what is my point. Um, 
I, I think my point is that that's um, one, I, I can't ever seem to exactly take a break from this. Um, two, I need to sometimes and, you know, have my own process and work on myself and out of, out of um, genuine interest in learning about who I am. And this is all sparking that in a real way and that feels good and hard and scary at the same time. And, um, and that it's always changing. So again, what I would say, I don't know if this speaks to your question, but for each individual, whatever speaks to you, whatever feels alive about this issue, then look at that. Like not what you think you should learn about this or how you should talk about this, but just be curious about how it's speaking to you, why you're here at a conference like this, you know? And it'll evolve, that's my, my experience. You'll, you'll know what you need to do and what you need to understand and how to evolve with it. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then we can evolve together. is for, I guess, anybody. Um, so uh, Buddhism isn't the religion that I was born into, and I, I feel uncomfortable, I guess, with um, this, that like I'm being culturally and religiously appropriative. Um, so I guess um, I'd be curious if anybody um, could speak to, I don't know if they've like thought about that, and yeah. Um, so, hello? Hi. So, I love Circle Sangha. Our intention is to be a space for people who are actively looking at oppression in their lives, but also a space that is open and welcoming to indigenous spiritual practices. Um, and being a part of that, um, And also practicing in the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh um, have really brought to the core of, of my spiritual practice how much, you know, my disconnection from the earth, my disconnection from being in collective, um, my disconnection from so many things is at the center of my practice. Um, and I think that's true for everybody on this planet. Um, I think that we are living in a time when we are very disconnected from one another, disconnected from these things, and that is not unique to me and my history and my ancestry. Um, that is true for so many. And um, so for me, I've, I've found um, resonance in, 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 you know, forgiveness for myself in engaging with these practices because they are all of our, I mean, it's for, other, it's for everybody. Um, yes, culturally, it's part of many cultures that I know nothing about <laughs> um, or very little about, but uh, through it, I've, I've found reconnection for myself um, to my own spirit um, and my own ancestry and lineage and historical experience. 
I like I like that question. Is this on? Okay. <laughs> um, my mind's been all over the side. Like, am I being appropriative? Am I not? Or uh, whatever. Um, you know, the more that I practice, sometimes I feel like I don't know what the Dharma is or I don't know like what Buddhism is. Um, obviously there's like Buddhist teachings and Buddhist culture in the countries it came from, but there's always the takeaway for me is it was about liberation. And the more and more I practice, I see those elements in many different traditions. Um, and like Daniel said, it sort of just points to this existential human thing of who am I, what am I, what am I doing? Um, and if I feel like I'm being appropriative, I try to make sure I've done my research, you know, I really try to engage deeply with the text, um, read source material, you know, connect with, you know, Tibetan people, and pay respects to the ancestors and the lineage, um, and um, gratitude, and, you know, people have practiced and shared these teachings with me. So I, did, I don't feel like I necessarily stole something. Um, you know, it was shared with me for the sake of my happiness and for all sentient beings. So practice it and uh, learn and have benefit. Um, but yeah, it kind of just points back to a very human thing. Thank you. And the last question. Um. I'm scared to ask this question, but uh, uh, so I'm coming from Vermont at a center called Center for Mindful Learning, where it's sort of like a monastic training center, and uh, you know my teacher is a white male, and uh, there's nine other residents, and most of them are white, and most of them are male, and there's only one other person that's a person of color, but uh, yeah, she's a Dharma sister that can pass as white. Um, so a lot of times it feels like I'm the only hmm. person representing race there, um, and uh, and, I, and I love everyone there, and I feel real deep gratitude for the, the training and everything I'm learning there. And ostensibly we're there to like transform ourselves and wake up and be forces of good for like social and environmental change, but. Um, I guess I'm curious about how, how any of you sort of interface and work with like your white dharma brothers and sisters in like dealing with race because um, I don't have a people of color group and um, and I feel the responsibility of being here to like have the courage and vulnerability to bring that out more and um, but it's hard because growing up like right being represented like being seen first as an Asian American was the last thing I wanted, and um, you know, one of the residents courageously told me once, and like a, when we're doing a relational practice, that like he feels deep shame that when he looks at me, the first thing he sees is an Asian guy, mm-hmm. and uh, and that was both like relieving, but also like deeply painful. Like maybe everyone sees me this way, and. Um, and that's like the last thing. It's like the last place I want to go, but like mm-hmm. the place I know that mm-hmm. is so rich and uh, needed. Um, so I'm just curious if anyone has uh, a starting point on how to actually do that messy work with mm-hmm. you know, these people. Um, 
course, I want to say that I believe there's a lot of people out there that are in the same place that you are, and that they have come to our center saying the same thing, that they're looking for a community where they feel more comfortable bringing the cultural parts of them. And um, so that's the first piece, that's, you're not the only one, particularly in the Northeast, I think that the, the predominant is for people of color to feel, you know, um, less of a presence. Um, so that, with your circumstances, very common around this neighborhood. Uh, that's one, and the other one is wh when you uh, were with that part of you that feels that you're one in a few, you know, that, that you don't feel, you, <clears throat> your culture is as welcome or as accepted, that you have to work with accepting it yourself. Right? Well, it's, it's like, what, how's that part of you that, and you got the Asian for me was the Latino part that, and sort of noticing that and work with that and then feeding it some other way. They can't feed you, they can't acknowledge you or they can't support it that what other ways can you find to nurture that. Um, myself, I, a few of things that I do, you know, um, either by reading or talking to other people, uh, finding other connections out there in the community. Uh, I mean, lucky for me, I, I work in a community where there's a lot of Latinos so that I got a lot of connection there, so I don't know where you want to find that. In Vermont, you said you're? Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, <laughs> I, I, you are out of luck. conversation, the conversation won't happen. I don't know. I mean, I guess a lot of times we're not in a position of choosing. It just sort of the burden is thrust upon us. Um, so if it's a conversation that you want to have, something that comes to mind is like really setting up a really nice self-care support system before you jump in there, you know, like come to our sits every month or, you know, you gotta have your people, you know, because otherwise, do it alone, man. <laughs> You're not alone, we, you, we've got your back, yeah. <laughs> so that concludes our formal uh, discussion together. I just wanna uh, say thank you to our panelists. Thank you.